Good morning and welcome to Behind Wyoming Energy. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll take a look at our current energy news and some pricing. Also, we're going to take a little deeper dive into natural gas and where we are with that valuable product. Also, we're going to be looking at Atlantic City, boom or bust. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you enjoy our show. Taking a look at Wyoming Energy news today here on the last day of August. West Texas Intermediate Crude is trading at 90.74, Brent Crude at 96.70. These oil prices looking like maybe it's some concern on our inflation numbers. Also with some COVID numbers in China is what's causing the market to drop. Natural gas is at 9.10 as I'll continue to say every show. It's going to get crazy this winter. I don't know where these are going to end, but it's going to get rather rather hectic out there with gas supplies. Especially where you have the Europeans will be looking for gas, trying to keep people warm over there. And they'll be wanting that uh, LNG shipments that President Biden had promised. Our national average for unleaded fuel right now is at 384. In Wyoming, we're at 396. Diesel fuel is at 9, check that, 494. A year ago, we were for unleaded at 359, and diesel was at 366. Coal prices for Powder River Coal is at sixteen twenty-five. Rig count is at seven sixty-five here in the U.S. In a press release from the governor's office, Governor Gordon has announced that Wyoming is taking legal action to protect the oil and gas industry. To do that, the state has filed a motion to intervene in a pair of cases that were filed by a coalition of advocacy groups seeking to challenge the June 2022 Bureau of Land Management oil and gas lease sale. Wyoming is joining the BLM and other states to defend the lease sale. Coalition of Activacy Groups alleged that the Bureau's lease sale violated the National Environmental Policy Act and the Administrative Procedure Act. In its opposition filings, Wyoming challenges the group's claims and asks the court to allow it to intervene because the state's sovereign and economic interests will be adversely affected were the lawsuits to succeed. Wyoming is committed to defending her interests and her industry in the courts when they are threatened, according to Governor Gordon. It is sad that every lease sale now leads to a challenge and that the NEPA has become a little more than a meal ticket for litigation special interest groups. The state argues in both briefs, that it has a legally protected economic interest in the outcome of this case, and the legal challenge threatens the state's interest. Filing note that the oil and gas lease sales collected over $13 million in bonus bids, entitling the state to more than $6 million in revenue. In addition, if the lawsuits are successful, Wyoming will not receive its share of rentals and federal mineral royalties from the lease parcels. In the second case, Wyoming has joined Montana, Oklahoma, and Utah to argue it would suffer harm if the suit were successful. In addition to citing its financial interests, Wyoming notes that 123 of the 173 federal parcels challenged in the suit are located in Wyoming. Just a note to our listeners, we will have in upcoming shows, we're going to be talking about safety in our energy industry, and that covers everything from oil and gas to mining and where we've been and, and where we are now as far as the importance of getting everyone home safely at night has been the mantra of the energy businesses here recently take a look at the history of natural gas although naturally occurring gas has been known 
since ancient times, its commercial use is relatively recent. In about 1000 BC, the famous oracle at Delphi, Parnassus, in ancient Greece, was built where natural gas seeped from the ground in a flame. Around 500 BC, the Chinese started using crude bamboo pipelines to transport gas that seeped to the surface and to use it to boil seawater to get drinkable water. The first commercialized natural gas occurred in Britain. Around 1875, the British used natural gas production from coal to light houses and streets. In 1816, Baltimore, Maryland used this type of manufactured natural gas to become the first city in the United States to light its streets with gas. In the United States, the properties of natural gas were discovered by the Native Americans who would ignite the gases that seeped into and around Lake Erie. French explorers witnessed this practice around 1626. In 1821, William Hart dug the first successful natural gas well in the U.S. in Fredonia, New York. Eventually, the Fredonia Gas Light Company was formed, becoming the first American natural gas distribution company. In 1836, the city of Philadelphia created the first municipality-owned natural gas distribution company. Today, U.S. public gas systems number more than 900, and the Philadelphia Gas Works is the largest and longest operating public gas system in the U.S. During most of the 19th century, natural gas was used almost exclusively as a source of light. But in 1885, Robert Bunsen, invention of what is well known as the Bunsen burner, opened vast new opportunities to the use of natural gas. Once effective pipelines began to be built in the 20th century, the use of natural gas expanded to home heating and cooking. Appliances such as water heaters and oven ranges, manufacturing and processing plants and boilers to generate electricity. Today, natural gas is a vital component of the world's supply of energy. Natural gas currently supplies more than one half of the energy consumed by residential and commercial customers and about 41% of the energy used by the U.S. industry. It is one of the cleanest, safest, and most useful of all energy sources. 99% of the natural gas used in the United States comes from North America. Because natural gas is the cleanest burning fossil fuel, it is playing an increasing role in helping to attain national goals of a cleaner environment, energy security, and a more competitive economy. The 2 million mile underground natural gas delivery system has an outstanding safety record. Natural gas distribution companies have always been subject to regulations by state and local governments. In 1938, with the growing importance of natural gas and concerns over the heavy concentration of natural gas industry and the tendencies of a potential monopoly of the interstate pipelines to carry higher than competitive prices due to their market power, the U.S. government began regulating the interstate gas industry with the passage of the Natural Gas Act. The act was intended to protect consumers from possible abuses such as unreasonably high prices. The act gave the Federal Power Commission jurisdiction to regulate the transportation and sale of natural gas in interstate commerce. The Federal Power Commission was charged with regulating the rates that were charged for interstate gas delivery and with certifying new interstate pipeline construction if it was consistent with the public conveyance and necessity. The Department of Energy Organization Act of 1977 transferred to the five-member Federal Energy Regulatory Commission 
or FERC, most of the former FPC's interstate regulatory functions over the electric power and natural gas industries, including setting the rates and charges for the transportation and sale or for resale of natural gas and interstate commerce. The act also transferred to the FERC from the Interstate Commerce Commission the authority to set oil pipeline transportation rates and to set the value of oil pipelines for rate-making purposes. In the 1980s, a movement towards deregulation of the natural gas industry began. In 1985, FERC issued Order Number 436, which barred pipelines from discriminating against transportation requests based on protecting their own merchant services. Thus, at least, in theory, providing all customers the same right to pipeline transportation industrial fuel switching customers had enjoyed since the early 1980s. The movement towards allowing pipeline customers the choice in the purchase of their natural gas and their transportation arrangements became known as open access. FERC order number 636 issued in 1992 completed the process of unbundling gas supply from gas deliveries by making pipelines unbundling a requirement. It provided for the complete unbundling of transportation, storage, and sales. The customer, the local gas distribution system, now chose its gas supplier if it has options, the pipeline or pipelines to transport its gas. In 1989, Congress completed the process of deregulating the price of natural gas at the wellhead, which was begun in 1978 with the passage of the Natural Gas Policy Act. By passing the Natural Gas Wellhead Decontrol Act, or NGWDA. The NGWDA repealed all remaining regulated prices on wellhead sales. In the current federal regulatory environment, only interstate pipelines are directly regulated as to the transportation of gas in interstate commerce. Investor owned local distribution companies, or LDCs, are typically regulated by the State Public Service Commission regarding the service they provide. Natural gas producers and marketers are not directly regulated by the federal government as to rates and related matters. Interstate pipeline companies are regulated regarding the rates they charge, the access they offer to their pipeline facilities, and the siting and construction of new pipelines. Similarly, local distribution companies, excluding most of the municipality-owned public gas systems, are regulated by state public service commissions which oversee their rates and construction issues and ensure that proper procedures exist for maintaining adequate supply for their customers. In the late 1990s and the early years of the 20th century, the APGA has been largely concerned with attempting to ensure that the tariff rates for pipeline services are set at just and reasonable levels and that pipelines do not discriminate with respect to the terms under which they provide such service. The APGA has also been at the forefront of those seeking price transparency in the marketplace as a means of fostering more stable prices for natural gas. In addition, APGA has been seeking to promote the efficient and judicious use of natural gas to reduce the extent to which demand for the product outruns available supply and drives prices to even more exorbitant levels. Rather an interesting read can remember back with my experience of back in the early 80s and when we ended up with gas being deregulated further in the 80s and more or less to spot market contracts 
which were more or less out of contract. They were a 30 day one piece piece of paper that set out the purchase and prices and such for the purchase of that gas. And it absolutely just changed the whole business to where it is today. And going forward with our prices and everything going on in our markets here in the US and the worldwide right now with natural gas, it's gonna be a rather interesting the remaining part of 2022 and beyond in our natural gas business. Today we'll be talking about Atlantic City Boom Bust Survivor by Lori Van Pelt, and this was published in wildhistory.org. In the century and a half since the 1860s, the Fremont County hamlet of Atlantic City, Wyoming, has lived through booms that brought thousands and busts so severe that just two people stayed. Currently, there are fewer than 15 year-round residents living in the 150-year-old town. The town traces its beginning to trappers. An American fur company trapper supposedly found gold near South Pass in 1842 and may have lost his life to tribal warriors. His name is not recorded. Trappers are said to have referred to the place as the Quaking Aspen Hut Crossing because of a hut constructed of aspen branches there. In 1867, discovery of gold at nearby Willow Creek, and soon after, the find of the Cassio Ledge, where the Carissa Mine came to be developed, drew gold seekers to the area. Three towns quickly sprang up, South Pass City, Hamilton City, which became known as Miner's Delight and Atlantic City. Miner's Delight became a ghost town long ago. Few people lived in South Pass City thanks to its designation as a state historical site. Atlantic City survived as something more like a community. However, the town was founded on April 15, 1868 by Charles Collins, H.A. Thompson, and Colonel Charles W. Tozer sometimes spelled Tazer, a mining engineer and former speaker in the Nevada Territory Assembly. Gold in a quartz vein, the Atlantic Ledge on nearby Rock Creek brought people to the place. The name came from the town's location near the Continental Divide. But on the east side of it, where the water flows to the Atlantic Ocean, a special census taken in 1869 numbered residents in all the mining camps in the area at 1,517. Already by that time, however, the gold claims were playing out and populations had started to shrink. Local historian Tom Schaefer estimated in 1972 that Atlantic City's population was 500 in 1869 and 325 in 1870. That year he counted four general stores, a hardware store, a second-hand store, two hotels, a cigar store, tables, two breweries, a lumberyard, a dance hall, two blacksmiths, three restaurants, and seven saloons, two stage lines, one originating at the Point of Rocks and the other at the Bryan City on the line of the Union Pacific Railroad, 60 or more miles to the south, served the area. Another report boasts that the first opera house in the state was located in Atlantic City. Schaefer estimated 1,500 mining claims and 150 mines, as well as several quartz mills and sawmills were located there. Only about 50 of the mines were profitable, however. Atlantic City's post office was established in 1869. 
To help protect the miners and other settlers, Wyoming's territorial governor, John Campbell, asked that a U.S. Army fort be built. Camp Stombaugh, halfway between Atlantic City and Miners Alight, was created on June 20, 1870. By 1872, populations of the three mining towns was estimated only at about 100 each. One estimate counts $2 million of gold produced in the area between 1867 and 1872. To put the amount in perspective, historian Bruce Noble Jr. called this a mere pittance when compared with the $40 million produced in Virginia City, Montana in a three-year period around the same time. Span Penser Hockett, a present-day resident, writes in the Atlantic City, Wyoming Voices from a Powerful Place, a book compiled by the Atlantic City Historical Society. By 1875, the decline was severe. Buildings were abandoned, moved, or torn apart for the lumber, yet there were a handful of people who continued to search the area for new sources of wealth. German immigrant Anna Schutzling, a widow, came to Atlantic City from Cheyenne in 1869 and stayed. She ran a hotel and entered the cattle business. She registered the AS brand in August 1873. Her brand is noted as the oldest Atlantic City brand registered for horses and cattle. Camp Stombaugh closed in May of 1878. Grainer, a Frenchman with big dreams and heavy pockets, arrived in 1884. Noble details Grainer's methods and motivation in a 1993 article in the Annals of Wyoming, a mining engineer. Grainer planned to use hydraulic mining to recover gold. This method required building two ditches with 29 flumes to supply water. In hydraulic mining, streams of water under high pressure are used to remove rock or sediment. The resulting slurry is washed through the sluice box where the gold settles. For the method to succeed, Grainer needed materials and manpower to build the ditches. He eventually hired about 300 workers and paid them $2 per day. He built a $6,000 sawmill. He also needed lots of water, hard to come by in the high dry country around South Pass. A granier built the Rock Creek Ditch, more than 10 miles long, placing a dam near the junction of the creek and Slate Creek to store water during the dry months. The ditch was completed in 1885. He then built the six-mile-long Christiana Ditch with a dam at Christiana and Gustav lakes in the Wind River Range. Water in this ditch was diverted from the Aposha River, frustrating local farmers and ranchers who were already using the water in the valley to the north. This resulted in disputes with other water users, eventually settled by the permitting system advanced by the territorial engineer Elwood Mead. Still by 1887, Garner had spent $200,000 but had not recovered any gold. The huge gap between earnings and expenses did not discourage him. By October 29, 1887, he told the Fremont Clipper that he would succeed and surprise the world with the output of gold from my mines in the vicinity of Atlantic City. But Granier encountered more obstacles, Noble writes, that the Frenchman placer claims, some of which were direct under existing buildings, created tensions with the locals. Granier offered conditional leases for the building owners, but not all of them accepted. 1889, Grainer grew fearful for his life and property and wrote to Territorial Governor Francis E. Warren for help. However, Noble could not locate any response from Warren, 
and nothing further appears to have happened. In 1891, Grenier made his annual trip to France. This time he wrote to Elwood Mead from the New York City, telling the engineer of his plans to create a hydraulic mining exhibit at the World's Fair in Chicago. These plans didn't materialize, and he did not return to Atlantic City. By 1893, Grenier was in ill health, also from money problems and troubles with machinery and ore in the mining project. That year, the United States suffered the worst economic depression to that time. Grainer was not able to accomplish his grand and golden goals. Noble research shows that the estimates of Grainer's gold production range from nothing to $200,000, and the exact source of this investment money is unknown. Grainer left an agent in charge of Atlantic City Holdings. In 1902, D.G. Calhoun of the Dexter Mining Company of Rochester, New York, purchased Grainer's mining claims and cleared the title of liens against the Grainer property. Clarence Carpenter had worked for Grainier. He and his wife and their four children had arrived in 1890, but according to a longtime local resident, Bob Townsend, were appalled by the group of sleeping conditions. Instead of staying at the hotel, they moved across the creek to a one-room cabin with a stable. They expanded their home and accepted boarders, opening the Carpenter Hotel and Restaurant in 1904. The Dexter Mining Company operated a 20-stamp mill to crush ore haul by wagon and a cyanide plant to process the ore that went bankrupt. It reorganized in 1914 as the Timba Ba Mining Company, which did not last long either. The extra mill building was moved in the 1920s to the Carissa Mine in South Bass City, where it stands today. In the 1930s, the E.T. Fisher Company leased 14 miles of Rock Creek from the Timba Company. Fisher dredged Rock Creek using a drag line and mercury recovery process with three crews working 24 hours, seven days a week. This effort produced an estimated $400,000 of gold, and historian Spencer Hockett calls this perhaps one of the most successful mining ventures in Atlantic City. The carpenters expanded their hotel in 1935, but government regulations during World War II halted gold mining. The Fisher Company shut down in 1941 and never reopened. By the end of 1940, Atlantic City had fewer than a dozen residents. The Carpenter Hotel was the last remaining business. One account notes that at one time, the only residents of Atlantic City were proprietors Ellen Carpenter and her brother Jim. The Atlantic City Post Office closed in 1923, reopened three years later, and then officially closed in 1954. Mail service was routed through Lander. But Atlantic City didn't die. In the 1960s, the United States still broke ground for what became the highest open pit iron ore mine operations in the United States. According to the company's website, which relied on the historical data found in the records at the University of Wyoming American Heritage Center, the company began full production in March 1963, converting iron ore into talconite pellets that were shipped to Utah for further processing. The Union Pacific built a 76-mile spur line that connected Atlantic City to Witten Junction, north of Rock Springs, and the main line of the railroad. In 1883, the steel company closed its operation because of global market conditions, and the rail line was removed. About 900 million tons of ore were extracted from the mine, which is now used occasionally 
as a gravel operation, according to Spencer Hockett. Within the last decade, the possibility of mining in the area has once again stirred imaginations. Historian Will Bagley noted that the American subsidiary of the Canadian company had begun placer gold exploration in recent years 10 miles south of South Bass City. According to a Casper Star Tribune report, the Wyoming Business Council embarked on a study about opening the iron mine again, stating that iron production could occur for up to 50 years in the area. But many challenges, including reconstruction of the railroad line, would have to be overcome. A centennial report, the Annals of Wyoming, numbered Atlantic City's population in 1968-11. Most of the iron mine workers lived in Lander. The Carpenter Hotel eventually became the Miner's Delight Inn, with several owners through the years, most recently Bob and Barbara Townsend. The inn is currently for sale. Another long-lived Atlantic City business is the Mercantile. It is currently a bar and restaurant open as of spring 2018 on weekends. It was named to the National Register of Historical Places in 1985. David Griffin, a longtime employer at the Merc, as locals call it, estimates the current population of year-round residents at less than 15. Many other residents are seasonal and come on for the weekend. Deep snow during the winter months dissuades many but attracts others like snow villas to the area. A rather interesting history of South Pass and the mines at South Pass City and all the people that were involved to try to get gold or some type of mining done. The story of Wyoming and mining, how tough it could be. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed our show. And for the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for energy here at Behind Wyoming Energy, your everything Wyoming energy podcast.